Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and co-parents of all ages, this podcast is for you. Introducing in the center ring the amicable divorce expert, Judith Weigel. Joining me in center ring today, we have a gentleman from Melbourne, Australia. We have Tamir Bergman. Tamir is in the middle of getting his therapy license, but he also has some very cool approaches to therapy. He's been through therapy. He's doing his hours. He's a men's divorce coach, which is separate and apart from therapy. So we have these two very cool disciplines coming together. And first of all, Tamir, thank you for joining us from way across the other side of the world. Hi, Judith. Thank you so much for the intro. And yeah, great to be here. It is a day later. We won't say the day because these are recorded and then I post them after the fact. But I just love the fact that you are the next day. This is so cool. Yeah, it's very cool. It's crazy. (laughs) Yes, it is. And scheduling these times, um, you made it easy. You're very conversant with uh, uh, time zones. So Tamir, I am always fascinated with men's divorce coaches. There aren't many of you around. And I really feel that men sometimes get lost in the emotional process of divorce. It feels like we all focus on women, women, women. I'm a woman. But men are half in a heterosexual relationship and then in a straight gay relationship. Men are a viable part of of the uh, of the divorce, so I want to start with you as a man. Have you been divorced? Yes, so I've been through separation. Um, I was lucky enough not to um, go through the legal process. I was living in a de facto relationship, but the emotional process is the same, right? Because a divorce is also another word for separation, really. Um, we just put the legal kind of lens on it. But what I've found is that a divorce and a separation is an emotional challenge. Agreed. That's the first thing that I needed to understand. Ah, uh, oh, okay, I get it. Yeah, because it's, ve- it's very easy to, I think, uh, most specifically men, to treat it as a legal challenge or as a business challenge or any kind of other challenge other than the emotional one, because guess what? We're not built or not grown or educated to deal with an emotional challenge, to deal with emotions. So of course we're going to grab the tools that we have in the shed that are business tools or other kind of like um, tools that we have to deal with it because we don't have the emotional tools. And what I always say, as well as some of my colleagues, is you have to go through the emotional divorce, or in your case, the emotional separation first, and then you can deal with the legal process if you're under the legal umbrella. And the reason why that's so important is making legal decisions is, has merit and weight to it. And once you put them on paper, it's legally binding. If you don't go through the emotions first, as you have found out, if you don't go through the emotions first and calm down and sort those feelings out and maybe do a little forgiveness, a little apology, um, a little correction, you're going to make more than likely not so great decisions when you're in the legal process. And for you, even though you didn't have the legal umbrella to deal with, did you, you have a child, right? And so you had to make decisions and around your child and the co-parenting goes on until your child is until they graduate from high school in Australia. Is that where minor child ends? Yes, but, you know, after graduation, there's still your child and her child. And, um, yeah, um, I guess we're still co-parenting. So with, with that in mind, I think, yes, it's very important to 
do the emotional work and reach some sort of an emotional equilibrium because negotiating from a place of emotional mismatch is just a bad idea. It's a bad negotiation technique to be in, the, in a state of um, heightened emotions and making decisions based on emotions. Um, it's going gonna, it's gonna to create uh, problems in the long term, like you said, in the, in the, legal, uh, in the legal process. Yeah, absolutely. Those decisions have to be clearly thought out and calmly thought out. How old? A daughter, right? You had a daughter? You have a daughter? Uh, Yeah, she's five and a half. So she's starting school next year. Yeah. In two weeks. How long have you been separated, Tamir? About two and a half years. Oh, wow. So she was definitely a toddler at that time. I guess her memory is of having two homes. Right. Yes, I, and I guess she still remembers when we were in the same house. Does she? To some degree. Yeah. What really helped for us is, first of all, um, a few things that we put as anchors. So, for example, making sure that the kid is in our first priority and the health and well-being of her, her emotional health, physical health, Um, is first priority for both of us. So a lot of the decisions that were made were actually anchored by that anchor decision, anchor uh, agreement. Excellent. Excellent. So it actually made things um, easier because when I decided to move out of my house and we were thinking about how to approach it, it was, first of all, what's good for our daughter. So I decided that, hey, let's, let's say that I'm going on a holiday and I'm moving to a holiday house and we call it a holiday house. And she was so excited. She packed up her little suitcase and she came to sleep with me at my first night out of the house, which was oh. great for me. Oh, my. Yeah, it was really comforting because, as you know and you can imagine, I was in a pretty bad space. Yeah, anybody would be. Anyway, it's so disconcerting. So what were those emotions that you went through, Tamir? Uh, Well, I went through all of them. And at the time, I couldn't even identify them, right? Because I I didn't learn how to do that. I wasn't educated on how to identify emotions. This is something that actually I, I was bred out of. It was always something to... um. Uh, emotions are a weakness, vulnerability is a weakness. So that's how I grew out of being able to do that. But then when I started learning how to identify emotions, I actually was able to go, oh, I'm sad. I'm feeling sadness. I'm feeling anger. I'm feeling shame. So I I think the two uh, most prominent and deep emotions that I felt were, were fear and shame. And what was the fear about? Uh, the fear was about the future. The fear was about the, the family. What will I do? What will happen to me? What will happen to our kid? Um, there was a, yeah, a lot of uh, future-based fear, the unknown. How will, yeah. my, how will my family react, etc. Okay, that, yeah, that's pretty normal fear. Tamir, mm. in the court system in Australia, specifically Melbourne, if you are unmarried and have a child, do you do what we do in the U.S. court system and maybe file what's called a parentage case um, or establishing, establishing the parents' names at the courthouse with the child so a legal... A legal umbrella, again, the word umbrella, comes into play uh, with requirements, legal requirements to, to raise and support the child. Or did you not use the court system at all? I, we didn't use the court system at all. And I'm not a lawyer, so I'm not sure what the situation is. Okay. But from my understanding and the... Um, the chats that I had with mediators and collaborative lawyers, their advice is to avoid the court. And it's possible to do it um, 
if maybe you, you don't even go to uh, mediation or, or lawyers, or if you do need to, there's another approach called collaborative law and mediation. Right. And so with collaborative law, you don't go to court, but you still file paperwork with the court. I'm not sure. Yeah. Well, that is in this country. I'm assuming it's the same in other countries that have collaborative law. And collaborative law, the agreement is not to litigate. And the lawyers who represent you cannot litigate. So if something happened and it became really, really contentious, those lawyers in collaborative could not take could not go to court with you. It'd have to be different lawyers. But I'm thinking still they're filing paperwork. Um, When you were looking at all the decisions that you had to make coming up with your daughter, you know, what school is she going to go to when she's of school age, how you both were going to financially support her and put the parent co-parenting schedule together. Um, Were there some legal guidelines that you had to follow? that were pre- presented to you? Uh, no. Um, we actually, because we had these anchors early on and we made a lot of effort to keep these anchors, we didn't need outside assistance. So, for example, one other anchor that we had was we always communicate and we're going to find a way to make it work. So on every single decision, if I need to maybe move the schedule or if I want to move to a different location, state or country, or if I got a job that I need to work weekends, whatever the situation is, we're going to communicate, we're going to talk about it and we're going to make it work somehow. We're going to figure it out. And it's actually quite amazing that it actually worked. That's great. So did you find yourself at some sticking points along the way over the last two and a half years, but you went back to your mission statement, so to speak? Uh, Absolutely. It happens all the time. And all the time we're going back to the mission statement. And look, there were some times that it was very hard to go back to the mission mission statement because um, when COVID started here in Melbourne, we had the longest lockdowns. We had really tough uh, time. and my partner actually um, started to really struggle with her mental health. She had a breakdown. And at some point, I remember her coming to me and saying, look, I, I need you to take care of our daughter because I can't do it. And, and I hope I'll get better and then I'll be able to do it, to be mom again. But at the moment, I can't be mom. So I... Um, had my daughter 100% here and did that for six months while caring for her, while being a carer for my ex, going through this. Because also um, the rules were as such that we couldn't have friends in our house. We couldn't have any support other than family members. So I was the only one really that was allowed legally to visit her at home. This has got to be horrible for some people. You know, for me, I mean, we all share our pandemic stories. For me, we in California had what's called a safer at home order. I think we were the first state to implement it. And then quickly, the other states on the West Coast of the United States jumped in and New York because they were hit the hardest in, in our country. But I came to the office every day. I, I knew that I could not, I mean, I'm a self-starter. If it was possible to do all of my work from home, I could, but it wasn't possible, first of all. And number two, my normalcy was going to the office. We had a lot of therapists here. And so we had what are called um, essential businesses, the governor of our state. Therapists were essential. Doctors were essential. And um, some other, obviously, restaurants for takeout were essential. But it was essential for me that I follow all the right rules by myself. And it was great just to see other human beings walking down the hallway, comfort in 
just looking at them and just saying, boy, this is a kick in the pants, isn't it? And so, you know, and we all got through it like that. But I know my eye was on Australia and I'm like, geez, I'm glad I don't live there. And Italy, I'm glad I didn't love to eat and shop there, but I'm glad I didn't live there. They were hard. You were all hardcore. We weren't quite so much. Okay. So back to your work, men's divorce coach. Within that realm, what are you seeing as a couple of the prevailing issues in, in the fear that men have? Where does the fear lie in what areas for men? Yeah, so a great question. Um, I'm seeing really three main pain points in separation. So the first of, a, of the pain points, we discussed that it's the emotional roller coaster. It's the, wow, I'm getting hit by all these emotions at once, can't deal with it. The second pain point is becoming a victim. I think for men, it's really hard to be hit with um, a partner that doesn't want to be there anymore. And I I think it's hard for everyone, but I'm just going, um, the the stat, I think it's something like 70% of the separations are initiated by the woman. So I'm, I'm, I, I was in a dumpy situation and, um, and that's what I know. So I know that it hit me really hard and I know that the first thing that I did almost automatically is starting to blame her. She was the one that broke it, broke the relationship. She was the homewrecker. She was the baddie. She was the witch, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And in that place, it has no responsibility for my own life. I'm not in a position of um, power and being sovereign. And I can't really change anything about my life from a position of a victim. So that's the second pain point. And the third pain point that men um, go through during separation is the loss of identity. Because as a man, and I don't know how it is for women, maybe the same, but as a man, I was putting my identity on external things. So for example, I was a a provider, I was a husband, I was a dad, I was a marketing person. These sort of things that are external, they're out of myself. And when separation happens, I used to think, oh, well, it's just losing a partner but it's actually losing all of these identities. Suddenly, I'm not a husband. I'm not a partner. I'm not a provider. I, I am not a homeowner because I just moved a house. I'm, maybe I'm less of a dad, so I'm questioning my identity there because I'm only seeing my girl 50% of the time. So am I a dad when she's not with me? So suddenly, it's like the rug being pulled under my feet and I'm being, I'm questioning my identity. Who am I if I'm not all these things? That was so beautifully put. I had never, I've never heard anybody talk about losing your identity, but of course it makes perfect sense. I, I remember when I was getting divorced, and it really was very easy for me. No children, that makes it quite easy. And we both made the same amount of money. There was nothing to divide. So it was just paperwork. But the identity, I remember that in the last stages, we did go to a therapist just to see, just to see if we could maybe stay together. And when it was clear that we could not, I remember calling the therapist kind of to say goodbye. And I remember saying, it was something about, this is Judy Weigel, formerly a wife. And now, and I think I just trailed off. I, 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 yes, I too struggled with identity. Um, and I had fewer roles to play than you. But with men, I do think I think we need to be a little more sensitive and understand that even though men may, might not show emotion, 
as much as women. And I'm not talking about anger management stuff. I'm talking about just regular tears, you know, the, just the regular sadness that, that women easily go through, um, or I easily go through. But yes, men have feelings too. And I think we we disregard it. Where I what I was thinking you were going to say, and you really didn't, was the fear over losing all their money in child support and spousal support. That seems to be a really big fear with men in the United States. Um, not so much in Australia. What do you think? What do they say to you, your clients, with my, about money? It's such an interesting point. Um, it's definitely a fear. I guess is when I'm dealing with fear and any other emotions, I need to treat the emotions like guides. Or well, that's, that's what I, I, I want to do. And ask, okay, I've got fear. What is it showing me? Why is it here? What's behind that fear? So dealing with money and the fear of losing money is a really interesting um, way of actually experiencing growth, of actually asking, okay, why am I so fearful? Was I, was I fearful in the same um, way when I was 20-something? Why not? Oh, I had nothing to lose. Now, there's also a flip side. I felt richer after my separation, why? Um, because when I was in a relationship, whatever money we had, I felt there was like a committee. I needed to ask permission and there was a committee that decided what to do with that pool of money. Right? The two people, the partners. After separation, guess what? Maybe I had less. Maybe I had, let's say I had 50%. Still, I was in a much richer position because now with my 50%, I can do whatever I want. I can buy that Porsche. I can go on a holiday. You don't need to ask anyone. And that for me was a big feeling of, wow, I'm so rich. right now. I'm richer than what I was. Wow, what an opposite reaction and what a pleasantly surprising reaction. That's great. No, that's really great. I, I love that. Um, now, there's this new, I don't want to call it a fad, it's a new form of therapy in the United States, and I believe it has hit Australia. And that's equine therapy. You call it the paddock sessions, don't you? Correct. I just heard a piece on this on the media about a week ago. And this was after you and I did our pre-interview and talk a few weeks ago. So would you please discuss, explain the paddock sessions, equine therapy, and how you use that with your divorcing or any clients that you have, maybe even some of your therapy clients. Yes. So when I was thinking about um, creating my own way of supporting men that are going through separation and divorce, I was thinking, where's the gap? Like, why didn't I go to see anyone when I was separating? Like, I, I, I went to, um, to see a, a lot of people, but it took me a few months. Or it, it wasn't really the first thing in, in my head when I was separating. I didn't really want to go to someone to sit in an office. And I thought, well, men are great at doing stuff. And it's also proven that um, something like a walk and talk is very therapeutic um, rather than sitting in an office. So I thought, okay, so, and I love horses. How about walking with men in the paddock? That's what I would like to do. Walking with, with a man in nature, outside of probably their normal environment, where there's a lot more freedom, there's a lot more quiet, and they can connect a little bit with something that maybe they forgot about 
if it's nature, if it's just listening to themselves, is it just the horses, the horse energy? So even before start talking, we start talking about the equine therapy and what I do there, just the being able to take an hour off your day or two hours of your day and go somewhere and go into a paddock and just walk with another man is highly therapeutic and a good environment for, for sharing, for emotional work, for growth, for vulnerability, all of these things. Animals are wonderful, aren't they? Mm. For that in general. But you were describing the nature of horses and you said they're sensitive to emotions and body language without even having, without even touching. They can, they can look at you and they can sense kind of where you're at. Would you talk about that a little bit more? Yeah, absolutely. So they, they feel, yeah, horses feel uh, emotions, intentions. What kind of an intention someone or an, another animal has and body language. And they have to, right? Because they're prey animals. Horses are prey. So the first concern of a horse is, I don't want to be food. I don't want to be eaten today. And there are, that's what they're built for. So horses, for example, have a um, 360 degrees of, of an energy field where they sense things. They sense things very easily. And they can identify very easily if something or someone is a threat. And guess what? At the, at the, at the start, they think everything is a threat. So for a horse, if they're seeing, uh, if they walk on the same um, road for a hundred times and then on a hundred and one time there is a, another um, bin outside or a cow, guess what? That's something that might be a threat. So they're very sensitive. Um, also, horses in a herd, are actually, um, they are making their heartbeat um, synced. So they're syncing their heartbeats. So if one horse sees a threat and their heartbeat starts to go up and down, guess what? All the other horses feel it. Oh, my. Yes. And that's also why the first thing that happens in sessions when someone is close to a horse suddenly they feel very relaxed and they feel calm because of that sinking of the heartbeat, because of that big energy that is regulating their heartbeat. Their heartbeat goes down too. Yeah, that's right. So suddenly what, what I, I'm told and what I can see because you don't actually, with the stethoscope, <laughs> check the horse's heartbeat. <laughs> Correct. That's right. But what I hear from clients is, right. wow, I feel so relaxed. Wow, I feel so calm. Um, they're being more present, right? So one of the biggest um, lessons horses can teach us and taught me is how to be present. Because a horse doesn't have worries. A horse doesn't think about the past and what they did and what they didn't do. They're just living in the present every single moment. My God, how wonderful. (laughs) (laughs) I know, right? If only I could do that too. Exactly. So a horse can teach me this. So when I'm going to my own and I'm doing my own equine therapy sessions with horses, that's one of the first things that I'm getting. Oh, just, okay, how to be in the moment how to be present. And that's really meditation, right? Right. On the other side of that, the people, the men that you bring to the paddock, if they are nervous, distraught, uh, very worried, what's a horse's reaction like to that? Yeah, so they say a horse is a mirror. And because the horse can feel emotions and intentions, the horse will somehow mirror that. So um, what will usually happen is that the horse will not engage or maybe will walk further away. Here is the first lesson. Why did it happen? Why, what can the horse tell us about our own emotional state? 
and I call horses relationship experts because they teach me what I'm doing or not doing in a relationship. When I'm coming to a horse, and it happened to me a few months ago that I started working with a horse and they really didn't participate. And then I thought, oh, I'll just go to another horse and try the other horse. Guess what? The same thing happened again. So I went there and scratched my head for a few moments and go, huh, who's, who's the common denominator here? Who's the, well, what's the one thing that is similar? The one thing is me. So I actually needed to ask myself, what am I doing and why two horses, either they're clearly idiots and they don't want to spend time with the amazing me, but, or they're just telling me something here is not right. I have to look down and, and see maybe a little bit deeper what's happening with me what do I bring to the session today? What are my intentions? Uh, intentions, and why don't they want to play? And did you, in that particular session, figure out what was going on that you maybe hadn't identified yet? Uh, yes. So after sitting with it for a few minutes. I, can def- I, I felt a little bit of ego. I had a little bit of ego. I went with the intention of, oh, I'm going to show you a few tricks. <laughs> I'm make you do things. So I had the intention. I had a very uh, clear outcome that I wanted oh. to achieve. And an outcome is in the future. So actually I wasn't present. The horses didn't share this outcome. And okay. if, I'm, if I was really honest with myself, I wasn't confident. I wasn't confident enough with these horses. I didn't know them well. And they felt it. And the horses said, wait a second, you're not confident. Why should we be confident in being with you? Because the horses look for confidence and leadership hmm. from, from me. And, and in a relationship as well, if I'm thinking about it, if I'm not confident, and I'm in a relationship or I'm going on a date, guess what? Doesn't Things will not turn out as, as great. Yeah. <laughs> your, your date may move, move away from the dinner table. <laughs> exactly. Maybe join somebody else at their dinner table more confident. Maybe. So Kidding. exactly. So that was an invitation for me to go, okay, so I wasn't confident. The horses felt it. What's next? What can I do differently next time? So next time, I set it up a, bit, a little differently. I've learned from what I, I've done that didn't work. And the next sessions, I showed up with no intention, but just to hang out and just to have fun. No outcome that I wanted to, to go to and, and, and get and achieve. And with a couple of carrots. And that was, that was a really nice session with one of these horses. Wow. That's sweet. That is so lovely. That is. Now, Tamir, not every coach is the same. One would think that every coach that I have spoken to, divorce coach, has all, everyone has had something uniquely theirs. So this is one of the things that, that is uniquely yours because this is not widespread. Um, equine therapy. But you were also saying to me that you have these seven sessions, say you have seven sessions when you get with somebody and, and it's seven steps in a roadmap to evolution, evolving into a healthier person uh, in a divorce. I know I'm butchering it. How should I have introed it? Okay, so I'm calling it um, the seven-step program for overcoming separation. Beautifully said. So would you like to take us through those seven steps and explore each one a little bit? Sure. So that, that program is what I'm, I mostly do on, with Zoom sessions with men. So we've got the equine therapy, and this is something that can – sit on, on Zoom and, and not be face-to-face. And going through it, it, these are the seven steps that really 
um, I guess, summarizing what I've been through in the last two and a half years, going through men's circles, learning from equine therapists, psychologists. Um, I had mentors, I had coaches. And these seven steps is what I found that really, really helped me to deal with. And also, I found that it's giving my clients a very clear roadmap of how long will this take and what will we do. So the first step, the first session is awareness. And it's really about identifying and dealing with emotions. How do I do it? What do I do after I identify? How do I sit with emotions? How does it feel like? What is it? What the process is like? So that's really about the emotional state. That's the first thing that needs to happen. The second round is the responsibility round. That's where we talk about things like stopping uh, the blame, the blame game around the ex, how to step out of victim mode, how to uh, identify victim thoughts, and how to step out of it, how to step out of the drama triangle and becoming the creator which is the opposite of the victim. What is the drama? I wanted to ask you, what is the drama triangle? What are the three people or points in it? Yeah, so the drama triangle is one of the best tools I've, I've learned on, on dealing with any drama in my life. Any argument, any drama, there's a drama triangle. So imagine a triangle. In one corner, there is the victim. Poor me. Everybody hates me. I'm not responsible for my life. She broke it off. She's the bad person, right? I'm a victim. On the other corner is the hero, the rescuer. So I will save you. I will do this for you. You can't do it by yourself, right? They're um, working with the victim. And on the third corner, there's the prosecutor or the villain. It's all your fault. You always do this. Gaslighting, etc. Now, it's what's important to understand is that most people in every argument will move through the drama triangle and will play different roles. So it's not just I'm always a victim. I sometimes will change the roles even in the course of one argument. Yes. Yes. I think that's very funny to me. But yes, I know what you mean. Yeah. So the idea is once we work on, first of all, learning about the drama triangle, we can then put it on top of all the arguments and drama in our life. And it's like deciphering it or decoding arguments, which is like, I felt like a superhero. It's a superpower. Because suddenly it wasn't just, oh, she said, he said argument kind of thing and about the, the little bits and pieces, the story, which is not really important. Oh, I could step out of it and go into the macro and look at, hey, what's really happening here? Oh, I'm being a victim. Of course this is happening. How can I take myself out of the triangle? And that's where change happens, right? Because if, if someone, if I'm a victim and, I'm take, and someone is a hero or a prosecutor, when I'm taking myself outside of the victim, outside of the drama triangle, the prosecutor doesn't have a victim. Uh-huh. The rescuer doesn't have a victim suddenly. I see. So either they're going around finding another victim or they stop being a prosecutor. Okay, cool. Mm-hmm. I get it. I get yeah. it. Number three. Number three is growth. Yeah. So it's really about increasing the awareness to my actions. So if in responsibility, we were a lot um, talking about thoughts, then growth is a lot about actions. How do I... I had a very cool little um, technique that I used when I was separating. I started becoming aware of my actions by imagining two buckets. One is the escape bucket and one is the cope bucket. And every action I took, I could put either in the escape or the cope. For example, drinking and smoking. Hmm, am I really coping with this? No, it's clearly an escape. So I'm going to put it in the escape bucket. It doesn't necessarily say it's wrong or I shouldn't do it. It's just an exercise in awareness of my actions. And suddenly, just by being aware of it, I can decide if I want to do it 
or not do it, but from a place of awareness, not just autopilot. So we're talking about things like integrity, accountability, to gain self-worth, to understand that my word is what I'm doing. I'm in, um, what is it like being in integrity? Well, I'm in integrity when what I say is what I do. And that really, when I have learned that, it really brought back my self-worth as a man and my identity as well. I am a man of integrity. That means something. It's not an external identity. It's internal. doesn't matter what happens. I'm a man of integrity. Love that. Yeah, no, I get it. I get yeah. it. That's great. And number four? The fourth round is the grief round. So th- this is a real doozy. Like I wasn't even aware of grief before. I wasn't expecting grief. Of course, now it makes sense. Yeah, the relationship has died. <laughs> there is a, a mourning period. I didn't get it. Um, I was actually, a few months after my separation, I suddenly felt like I was drained of energy. I couldn't uh, do anything. I didn't have energy to exercise. It felt like a little bit like I'm in a swamp. It's, it was really hard for me to to just walk and get ahead and do things. And when I talked to one of my mentors, he said, are you sure you're not grieving? And I went like, you're Uh, absolutely right. Spot on. That's what it is. So, And we we all have to grieve, do we not? If the relationship meant anything to us. Absolutely. And any relationship, any serious relationship of it doesn't matter the, the time length, but usually it's something like five or 10 or 20 years. Of course, it's something to grieve on. And of course, we, we need that time. I needed to allow myself, first of all, identify it, then allowing myself the time to grieve, and then taking steps to, to honor that relationship and release it so I can be prepared for the future. If I, if I can't grieve and I'm not releasing the past, then I'm not able to go and enjoy the future. No, that makes perfect sense. And I love what you said about honoring the relationship. Just because the relationship is over doesn't mean good things didn't happen during it. Doesn't mean that you both shared time on earth together and now you have a beautiful daughter. So yes, honoring the relationship is something that is pretty far removed when you're grieving, (laughs) but it's so healthy when you can do it. Absolutely. And this is such a good point because when the minute separation happens or like someone saying, oh, I want out, oh, that's it. I, I, I was the same. I'm focusing suddenly on what's at hand and all the negative stuff that is happening. And it's very easy to forget that, hey, we actually shared good 10 years together. We had a beautiful child. Mostly it was a lot of fun. And she, she was my best friend. So yes, I'm feeling very hurt and very angry and sad and my ego and all of that stuff. But most of these 10 years were really, really good. So by having the time to honor that relationship, to let it go, to have a funeral for it. So physically, I was, I was um, the way I dealt with it, or one of the ways, is to burn wood in my outdoor fire pit. I just, I just spend three or four days just burning wood just with a fire, looking at the fire, and I couldn't do anything else. I was, it was just a state of nothingness when I needed to just get rid of the stuff and let it burn. And I remember also at the end, I, at the end of these four days, I was actually burning also not just a relationship and letting it go in the smoke and all that, but I was burning the men that I used to be. So for example, specifically, I was burning my people pleaser because I'm a recovering people pleaser. 
tough one. So am I. It's tough. <laughs> and that's what I discovered during that process. And that's something that I want to get rid of. So it's also, when, we, when I talk about grief, it's also a great opportunity to release the man that you were in that relationship and to step into the future you, the man that maybe now, like me, understand that I'm a people pleaser and going to do something about it. Um, as as a, um, an ongoing recovering people pleaser who falls back into pleasing at the drop of a hat, it is so refreshing to be able to say, I just don't want to do that. I just don't want to do that. Or I can do that, but I don't want to do this. It, it is it, something as simple as that um, makes a difference in how you feel about yourself. We all tend to feel guilty. Well, we advance the guilt we think we're supposed to feel and the upset that we think we're going to cause when we say no to somebody. But it rarely does that happen unless you're dealing with somebody who has to have their own way all the time. People who are not people pleasers get no. They really get and appreciate now. Okay, that's okay. That's, I, you know what? I didn't really want to do it anyway. So thank you for saying that. You never know what's on the other side of no. We should try it a little more often, right? We should be like the kids. No. They just say no to say no. <laughs> uh, absolutely. And, and that, this is how I learn boundaries. Mm. And in, in fact, I, I, I'm saying my ex is my biggest teacher because she taught me about boundaries. She taught me about how to step out of my people pleaser. It's great. I love that. I love when that happens. Number five. So number five is truth. And it's really about mapping um, the future, the uh, values, um, aligning uh, the masculine and the feminine energies, understanding about energies, that equilibrium. Um, everyone has a masculine and a feminine energy, right? Even me as a man, masculine and feminine energy. Um, most of the time, uh, men lead with a masculine, but sometimes not. Sometimes they lead with the feminine. That's okay. Being aware of that really changed my awareness to a lot of situations. Um, because I can now decide in a very aware fashion what energy I want to use here. Am I using the feminine? Am I using the masculine? How, okay, so I, listen, I'm very in, in tune with all that, but how do you do that? Okay, so one of the first thing, things I've done was to create two lists on Spotify. One was my masculine list. And I call it a divorce cowboy playlist. And this was the list that of the songs that made me feel masculine. Um, for me, a lot of these songs were like Johnny Cash and things like a, a little bit country and things like that. And the other list was my feminine list. So songs that are more dancey, more lighthearted, more um, feminine, more nurturing. And I could see how in certain situations, I wanted to listen to the masculine list because I wanted a little bit of, of that energy in me. Mm -hmm. Or in some other cases, I wanted to use the feminine list because I wanted that energy. So that little thing just allowed me to fall into that awareness of how to use these energies, how to be aware of them and what they're good for. That's great. And music is so therapeutic in and of itself. My gosh, it can change mm -hmm. your mood in a second. Oh, that's really good. That's extremely good advice, Tamir. Thank you for that. I like that. No worries. Thanks. Number six. Uh, six is about acceptance. So this is really, really tough. Um, Learning to forgive and 
practice gratitude. And sometimes even thank. I remember a point when I said to my ex, I forgive you and I thank you, which is for me a step further. Um, Did she say, forgive me for what? (laughs) Did she say that by (laughs) chance? (laughs) I think she was actually focused more on the thank you, but I guess that for her it meant a lot because I could understand by saying I forgive you and I thank you. It means that I understand what she went through and the strength that she needed to come in and speak her truth, to come in and say, listen, that doesn't work for me anymore. Knowing perfectly well that everybody will be against her and I will blame her and she's breaking the family and the kid and my parents will never talk with her again and all of that backlash, she knew about it. Still, she found the courage to go, this doesn't work for me anymore. And I was also thanking her for releasing me because she did it after 10 years together. She could have waited. She could have waited another 10 years. But guess what? I'm so much better off that she released me now when I'm 47 than 10 or 20 years down the track. Even though it's still fine, 57, 67, it's still a young man. But I, I know what you mean, though. I know what you mean. You're still young enough that if you wanted to start another family, you could. You're still young enough that there is no, no immediacy to, to choosing another relationship. You know, you can have some space and time and, and be on your own. And, and what's interesting about the forgiveness piece um, it, when we get upset, when we get angry, when we're hurt, um, and when we, of course, think it's the other person's fault, which it could be, by the way, but regardless, we forget that every change to our life opens another door, and we don't really know it's on the other side of that door until it's opened and we go through it. What I have been dealing with, I guess, over the past year is if something changes, if if an appointment reschedules, if something doesn't work out, if the pandemic happens, uh, I, I start saying, hmm, I wonder what possibilities, I wonder what opportunities I should now look for because of this change. And I have found myself getting less upset over change. I was very upset over the pandemic. I'm like, don't tell me about a bad infecting the world, please. What is going on here? And then I said, it almost doesn't matter. It really almost doesn't matter. What matters is what good can come out of this. How can I use this as an opportunity to enhance my life, as bizarre as it may sound? And um, had I bought Zoom stock, by the way, at the beginning of the pandemic, I would be not rich, but I would have a little more money in my bank account. So so I'm ready for the next crazy thing that happens. I'm buying stock in whatever that product or service is that's going to be the new way we have to live. I am buying I'm buying stock in that product. That's what that taught me. And I thought, isn't that bizarre? That even in something that appeared to be not only health crippling, but financially crippling, could actually have a little bit of a silver lining. As long as you stayed healthy, you could have a little silver lining on the money part. But yeah, yes, that's good advice. All the time. Pardon me? It's such good advice to, to do what you, you just said. And also, yeah, realize that every crisis is an opportunity, right? Yes, strangely enough, because crises are sometimes horrible. We can make things into a crisis, like your favorite restaurant is not open right now. That's a crisis to those of us who don't cook. 
But then there's like serious Try something new. <laughs> I will not learn to cook, believe me. I <laughs> Try a new restaurant. I'll try a new restaurant, that's right. So, but, but yes, we can't, you know, this can't be said enough that stuff happens, we can't prevent it. All we can do is say, wait a minute, you know, what, where's the benefit in this for me? How can I use this to grow after you catch your breath? <laughs> and, um, and it works. It plain old works. Yeah. Okay. And lastly, number seven. Yes, uh, freedom. Lucky number seven. Lucky number seven, freedom, um, welcoming um, masculinity, start dating again, start really understanding that opportunity that lies ahead. What's next? And what's next after you've done all this work? all this self-development work with your new awareness to my emotions, my thoughts, my actions, my energies, all of that stuff that is amazing and so different than the man I used to be that was running on autopilot. So suddenly that awareness is such a gift and Everything, every aspect of my life is far better because of it. So it's the relationship with my co-parent, with my child, with my girlfriend, um, when, when I was dating, with my friends, in my business. Everything is amazing. So getting separated was a bonus for everybody you know, including yourself. An amazing opportunity from yeah. a crisis. Absolutely. That's great. I, I, I gained a new opportunity in life, a, a, new, a new go, a redo, a remake. Yeah, this is not trite or cliche because when I do confirmation emails uh, for appointments coming to the office to start the filing process, I put as the very last sentence, in my confirmation email, divorce is a new beginning. And, and, and it can't be said enough. I know what it's like to be sad. I spent a year being sad um, when I was getting divorced. And, and then after that year, I was, I, I was okay. I exercised and, uh, and, 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 and I was okay. You never know how long that period is going to take. But I knew, but I, I, I know that when it was over, I felt refreshed. I, I bounced back. You know, that grieving process, um, it, was, it was therapeutic, I guess. I mean, I chose to walk. I did the Forrest Gump thing. When his mother died, he ran across the country and then he was done. Well, I walked for a year and then I was done. And uh, I said, okay, now time to join the living and and have some fun. And, and so, yes, it does work. Yeah, I love it. I love divorce as a new beginning. Yeah. And yeah, and just walking until it's done. And that's why it's so important to go, circling back, it's so important to go through the emotional divorce first, the emotional process first. If you can, just let things lie, do the best you can with child support, spousal support, whatever whatever works in your country, whatever, you know, is part of your law. Do the best you can, but heal first and then make your legal decision second. Obviously, if you have children, you have to kind of shore that up best you can at the beginning. But, um, yeah, you, you have to spend some time on these steps, these seven steps that you use because they're so very important. This has been great, Tamir. Thank you. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your thoughts. Thank you so much, Judith. Yeah. Now, you may not get a lot of people actually calling you because you do live in Australia, but email. So how do people reach you outside of Melbourne? 
Yeah, so just uh, I'm on uh, divorcecowboy.com.au. That's the website. Wait a minute. That's right. I forgot about that. Divorce. I'm putting this in the show notes. Divorce Cowboy and what's the other thing? .com.au. AU as in Australia? Correct. Picking up on that accent. Okay, that's great. Divorce Cowboy. I love that. That fits with everything that you said. And the horses. I finally got it. (laughs) (laughs) I catch up. (laughs) I catch up eventually. Exactly at the right time. (laughs) It's right. We're ready to wrap up. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And I am thanking you for all the men who are listening as well. I think this was extremely helpful. No worries. I'm so happy. And thank you so much for the opportunity. Great to chat with you. Thanks. And thank you to everybody listening, as I appreciate it. This podcast is for you. This is to help you through the hard times so you can get to the good times, help you to be amicable because it's always the better way. You can reach me through my email, judith at theamicabledivorceexpert.com. And as always, have an amicable day. That's our show for today. Thank you for joining us. Be good to yourselves, be kind to your spouse, and cherish your children above all else.